The text this morning is found in the book of Jeremiah, and I'll be reading from chapter 32. I invite you to turn there in your own Bible, or take a Bible from the pew in front of you. We'll read Jeremiah 32, verses 36 through 41. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. I referred to the term Christian hedonism in a Sunday morning service some time back, and a parent came to me later and said, did you know that my little girl heard you say Christian heathenism? And I know that even if I get my pronunciation just right this morning, it's hedonism, hedonism. Many of you are still going to think heathenism because for you, hedonism is exactly that. A heathen philosophy of life. And you may not be far wrong because the general run-of-the-mill definition of hedonism would be Pleasure-seeking with moral indifference. And didn't Paul say in 2 Timothy 3, 4, the last days are coming and men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And surely we're in those days. Two years ago, Daniel Yankelevich, sociologist, wrote a book entitled New Rules. Searching for self-fulfillment in a world turned upside down. And he argues from extensive interviews and from nationwide polls, he's a pollster by vocation as well, that massive shifts have occurred in American culture over the past generation. And widespread personal search for self-fulfillment has created a whole new set of rules by which our society thinks and feels. For example, he says, quote, In their extreme form, the new rules simply turn the old ones on their head. And in place of the old self-denial ethic, we find people who refuse to deny anything to themselves, not out of bottomless appetite, but on the strange moral principle that I have a duty to myself. He tells the story of a young woman, 25 or so, who 
went to see her therapist. And she complains to the therapist, I'm becoming so nervous and fretful because life has grown so hectic. Too many weekends, too many discos, too many late hours, too much talk, too much wine, too much pot, too many lovemaking events. And the therapy, the therapist asked mildly, why don't you stop? And she looked blank, and then after a moment, her face was dazzled with illumination. You mean I really don't have to do what I want to do? She said. And Yankelevich quotes that in all seriousness as representative of mid or latter 20th century American psychoculture. Here's another quote. The, the self-fulfillment seekers operate on the premise that emotional cravings are sacred objects, that it is a crime against nature to harbor an unfulfilled emotional need. Another quote, ours is the first era in history when tens of millions of people offer as moral justification for their acts the idea that an inner, presumably more real self, is not fit for the assigned social role in which they find themselves. And probably the relationship that has experienced the brunt of this upheaval in the change of rules in our culture is marriage. Yankelevich, even though as far as I know, he's not a Christian, but a Jewish, secular sociologist and pollster, has tremendous insight when he says, quote, successful marriages are woven out of many strands of inhibited desire, accessions to the wishes of the other, acceptance of infringements on one's own wishes, disappointments swallowed, confrontations avoided, opportunities for anger bypassed, chances for self-expression muted. To introduce the strong form of self-fulfillment urge into this process is to take a broomstick to the delicate web. Often all that is left is the stuff that sticks to the end of the broom. The structure of the web is destroyed. And therefore, I have a deep empathy with those of you who are free enough from American culture to respond to me when I say hedonism and say, Enough of it! We don't need hedonism. Our homes, our schools, our businesses, our society are being destroyed by hedonistic self-fulfillment seekers who don't have any of the moral courage or self-denial or rugged commitment or sacrificial allegiance that holds the precious structures of our life together and ennobles American culture. We don't need hedonism, Piper. We need a return to rectitude, integrity, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, self-control. We're closer than you think. Just give me nine weeks of an open ear and a discerning spirit.
before you settle finally on the issue of Christian hedonism. Don't write it off, please, because of the title. Sometimes an illustration is worth more than uh, many precise, abstract definitions. So instead of defining for you what I mean at the outset by Christian hedonism, let me just give you a string of examples from the Bible. We'll get a definition before we're done this fall. David was a great Christian hedonist. He counsels Christian hedonism when he commands us, commands, note you, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's a command. He demonstrates Christian hedonism at its heart when he cries out, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I'm hungry. Moses was a great Christian hedonist, according to Hebrews 11:24, because it says there that he rejected the fleeting pleasures of sin. And instead, he considered abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt because he looked to the reward. And there was another set of hedonists in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, verse 34, there were a group of Christians whose friends had been put in jail. They decided that they would visit them at risk to their lives. And indeed, it cost them their property. And listen to what it says. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. The Apostle Paul commends Christian hedonism in chapter 12 of Romans when he says, Let him who does acts of mercy do them begrudgingly. Do them with cheerfulness. It's a command. And Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, was the great standard bearer of Christian hedonism because it says in the Old Testament, his delight was in the fear of the Lord. And in the New Testament, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Christian hedonism teaches that the desire to be happy is God-given and dare not be resisted or denied, but directed to God for satisfaction. Christian hedonism does not say, listen carefully, Christian hedonism does not say whatever makes you happy is good. Christian hedon, hedonism says God has shown you, O oh man, what is good and it ought to make you happy. In other words, since doing good ought to bring us joy, therefore, the pursuit of joy is a necessary element of every moral endeavor. Exactly the opposite of what Immanuel Kant said. 
If you abandon the pursuit of joy, you cannot do the will of God. Christian hedonists have said that the greatest saints, the most godly saints of every generation have never seen a contradiction between these two things. Saying on the one hand, we are regarded as sheep for the slaughter and are killed all day long. And saying on the other hand, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice! Christian hedonism does not join the culture of self-gratification that makes you a slave to your sinful impulses. Christian hedonism says, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and your heart so that you can delight in the will of your Father in heaven. According to Christian hedonism, Joy in God is not optional icing on the cake of Christian duty. It is the essence, or at least, lest I overstate it, at least an essential part of saving faith. Now, what I want to do today is to uncover for you from Scripture the foundation of Christian hedonism, namely the happiness of God. And I have three observations that I want to make and try to support from from the Bible. Number one, God is happy because he delights in himself. Number two, God is happy because he is sovereign. And number three, the happiness of God is the foundation of Christian hedonism because it overflows in mercy to you. Number one, God is happy because he delights in himself. Wouldn't you agree that God would be unjust if he took anything less than infinite delight in that which is infinitely glorious? And he is the only thing that is infinitely glorious. And therefore, God, in order to be righteous, must delight fully and infinitely in his own excellence and his own glory. And oh, he does. The scriptures are shot through with passages that teach that God does everything out of a love to his own honor and glory. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, says the Lord. How should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48, 11. And the same thing appears when we try to probe just a step farther into the mystery of the Trinity. I'll try not to go beyond Scripture here. I admit with Calvin that every time we try to make comments about the inner workings of the Godhead, we're like stammering children. But even out of the mouth of babes can come wisdom if they subordinate their little minds to the Bible. Scripture teaches... In John 1, 1, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was and is God. Scripture teaches in Hebrews 1, 3, that he reflects 
the glory of God and bears the very stamp of God's nature. And Scripture teaches in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the glory of Christ is the image of God. And I learn with you from those three texts that from all eternity, God the Father has beheld God the Son and has seen in God the Son a perfect image and reflection of His own excellence and glory and therefore loves the Son infinitely. And therefore, as soon as the Son entered the world, took upon Him the ministry of reconciliation, what did God say to Him at His baptism? This is my loved Son. In Him I'm happy. I love my Son. I delight in my Son. Look! If you've seen the Son, you've seen me. And oh, I love what you see. Therefore, the best way, probably, to talk about God delighting in Himself is simply to say that He delights in Jesus. He loves His Son. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, says the Lord. Isaiah 42.1 So the first observation is this. God is happy, infinitely happy, because He delights in an infinitely worthy being, namely Himself, especially as He is imaged forth in His Son. Second observation. God is happy because He is sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Doesn't that verse imply that God's sovereignty is His right and power to do whatever makes Him happy? Our God is in heaven. That means He is above all things, subordinate to nothing. Therefore, the inference is drawn, he does whatever he pleases. That is, he always acts righteously, that is, out of a regard to his own glory. And whenever he acts righteously, his action is never frustrated beyond his will. Isaiah 43:13. I, I am God, and also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I act and who can hinder? Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, says the Lord. Daniel 4.35, He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand or say to Him, What are you doing? None. We may be sure, therefore, that God is infinitely happy because he has the absolute right and power to overcome every obstacle to his joy. Now, I want to put a parenthesis in here, which is very important, I think, for many of you and is for me. It's worth asking here, how can God be happy when there's so much pain and evil in the world? Limbless bodies washing up on the shore. Sea of Japan. 
And you can just make your own list of miseries that you've been through and know about. Are we, are we, would a person walking in here from Sub-Sahara say, Knife, you talking about? I'm really sensitive to that when I talk about Christian hedonism. And I just have two things to say. It's a huge problem. Two things that have helped me address that problem. One is this. It doesn't help me to say that, let's save God's reputation by admitting that he doesn't have power. He's really not in control. It wasn't his fault that that happened. If someone had tried in December 1974 when my mother was killed in a bus accident, if someone had tried to comfort me by saying, Johnny, God didn't want that to happen. He's good. You can still trust him. I would have, I would have said the same thing I would say today. I'd say, thank you for your concern. But frankly, I'm not consoled by being told that my God can't control the track of a VW bus. No comfort, thank you. My God is sovereign over the flight of four-by-fours. He took her. He took her in His appointed time. And I believe now, and one day I will know and understand that it was good. Because I've learned in Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary that God is good. And I urge some of you who are struggling with tragedies, some of them just happened some way back, and you can't get it out of your craw, but find fault with God again and again. Let it go. Let it go. He will show you one day that it was good. The biblical solution to the problem of evil is not to take away his sovereignty. The second observation that has helped me in this problem is this. God's attitude towards pain and evil depends on the focus of his lens. God has the very strange ability to take his lens and zero it down on one little event, just like I can right now on a word on this page. When he does that and what he sees at the end of that lens is pain and suffering of the innocent and evil, he abhors it and he is grieved. But when God starts opening the lens so that all redemptive history is taken in from the beginning of the world to the very end in eternity. And he now sees that event or that suffering as a, as a part of a pattern, a mosaic that to be sure has its black pieces. He delights in the whole thing and approves of it and wills it as a sovereign God. You know, so many of you have experienced tragedies in which later you've been able to see the, the good in it. 
Most of our tragedies, however, we're left not understanding why. When my mother was killed, that, and uh, two weeks later, my grandmother brought me, her mother, who's still alive, brought me a little jar of pills that nobody knew my mother was taking. And my grandmother just speculated, uh, was something wrong with Ruth? She didn't tell us about? Could that be the reason? And of course, who knows? I have no idea. Did God spare my mother eight years of cancer that were right there? I only mention that because if, if I can imagine that with my little brain, surely God has the ability to see what is best in every situation. And we ought not call his sovereignty into question or his goodness. Take, for example, on this lens analogy, the death of Jesus. It was God the Father who willed the death of his son. Listen to this from Hebrews, I mean from Isaiah. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him and he has put him to grief. You ever think of God the Father putting his son to death? Well, I can't believe that when God zeroed in on his son and saw him suffering, that he delighted in what he saw. He didn't delight in the suffering in and of itself. He didn't delight in the sin of Herod and Pilate in and of itself. But when God opens the lens to redemptive history from beginning to end, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 that it was fitting to God. He deemed it fitting that the pioneer of our salvation should be perfected through suffering. Fitting. Good. Appropriate. And when God looks at the whole spread of redemptive history from beginning to end, the death of Jesus Christ is seen as a demonstration of God's righteousness and as a means of gathering in the elect. And it is worth it all. And he can rejoice in what he did with all the pain and horror and agony of that moment. And there's nothing that you've ever experienced that is like that. You cannot hold it against God if he offered his own son. Finally, I've said two things now. One, God is happy because he delights in himself and he is happy because he is sovereign. Finally, the happiness of God is the foundation of Christian hedonism because it spills over in mercy to you. Can you imagine what it would be like if God were unhappy? What if God grumbled and pouted and got depressed like a jack-in-the-beanstalk giant in the sky? What if God were despondent and gloomy and dismal and discontented and dejected and frustrated? Could you join David and say, O God, thou art my God, I seek thee. My heart yearns for thee, my flesh fails for thee. As in a land where no water is, no way could you pray like that. You know what you'd have to do? 
You'd have to be like a little child with a very abusive daddy who comes home real mad every day and every time he looks at his kid, he hits him. What does a kid do? Can he delight in a gloomy father? He runs. He calculates his whole life how to stay out of daddy's way. Or maybe he humors him. Or maybe he works for him. Oh, there are so many people who relate to God like that. Stay out of his way. What did he mean? He's gloomy God. Therefore, I say to you, the foundation of Christian hedonism is that God is an infinitely happy being. Because the aim of Christian hedonism is to enjoy fellowship with God, to cherish His presence. And how can you do that if He's a gloomy God? So the basis and foundation of Christian hedonism is that God is the happiest of all beings. And here's another way to say it. In order for a sinner, that's you and me now, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. In order for a sinner to pursue God, to find forgiveness from Him and joy in Him, he's got to be sure that when he approaches God, God's not going to smash him. God's going to welcome him. Come on in. Where's it, where are we going to get that kind of assurance? Where are we going to get that encouragement? Listen to this text. I hadn't seen for years that this text in Jeremiah 9.24 is an amazing encouragement to believe that God is going to receive you with mercy. It says, I am the Lord who performs mercy, justice, righteousness in the earth. Why? Because in these things I delight, says the Lord. You know why God shows you mercy? Because it makes him happy. He enjoys it so much. He's not constrained by some kind of outward, formal, moral principle exerting force on him to get the job done now and be merciful down there on earth. God delights in showing mercy. Therefore, the ground of our confidence in the mercy of God is that God is a perfect Christian hedonist. And if he weren't, we'd have no hope. That is, he delights above all things in his divine excellence. And he is so full of life and joy that the climax of his pleasure is to share it with you. Listen to the heartbeat of the Christian heavenly hedonist in Jeremiah 32 the text that Mike read for us. Before I read the text, I want to ask you two questions that the text answers to see if, if you're tracking with God or would you give a different answer. Why does God do you good? Romans 8.28 says He works everything together for your good if you trust Him. Why does He do that? Second question, how does He do it? How does He go about it? How much energy does he expend? What are his emotions like when he is showing you mercy? Let's read the text. Verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. See, he even meets the condition. I will put the fear of me in their hearts 
that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. How? With all my heart and with all my soul, says the living God. That's how he does his merciful acts to you. God does you good because he enjoys it so much. He pursues the business of loving you with all his heart and with all his soul. The happiness of God spilling over in mercy to you and me is the foundation and the example of Christian hedonism. And I close now with an invitation to you. These precious and astonishing promises here are not for everybody. There is a condition... And the reason I can smile when I say there is a condition is because it's so easy. It's good news. It's gospel. The condition is not that you work for him. The condition is not that you pay him. What does a sovereignly, infinitely happy God need with your work? And he owns already every resource you have at your disposal. You can't pay him. What can you do? You know what you can do? You can enjoy him or not. And the condition of whether he will work for you is simply whether you're a Christian hedonist or not. Will you stop trying to pay God? Will you stop trying to work for God? And will you simply hope in God? Here's a beautiful passage from Psalm 147. Listen to God's hedonism summoning our hedonism. His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. You don't have to do deep knee bends for God. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And then here comes the greatest sentence of all. The Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. So I close with this sentence. Here's the way you get for your benefit all that God has to offer. Take all the hope for happiness that every one of you has. Not a person in this room doesn't hope for happiness. Take the hope for happiness which you have pinned on yourself, your spouse, your home, your hobbies, your job, your vacation, your leisure, your reputation, and pin it on God. Hope in God. Or, to put it another way, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Hallelujah. There's a great hymn of Christian hedonism on page 377. I want us to sing it as a prayer together. And as you sing it, try to see how many reasons in the hymn I chose it for. And now, O oh God, would you please grant that in this week... We have a great portion of your immortal gladness.
poured out in us and poured out through us. As we look to you and not to the world for our joy and for our hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all the people said, Amen.